0: Hey weedsers are you going to be in Austin for South by Southwest? If so, I'd love to invite you to join me for a live tape in of The Ezra Klein Show. I'll be at the deep end by Vox Media on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30, talking with Melinda Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We're going to be talking about the work they do, about the state of public health worldwide, about what is and isn't getting better in the world. I'm very excited to have this conversation. The, the, the work they do is important and it is controversial and it is interesting and it is making a lot of lives better. And there's a lot around that to dig into. So I think I think that's going to be a very good episode. And you should come see it. The Deep End by Vox Media. We are taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest. Again, that is from March 9 to March 11th, And it isn't just me. You're going to get live podcasts from many Vox Media Podcast Network favorites, including Kara Swisher's Recode Decode, The Verge's Vergecast, but again, you can join me for live taping The Ezra Klein Show on Sunday, March 11th at 3.30 for a conversation with Melinda Gates. To request an invitation, go to voxmedia.com sxsw-2018. Again, that is voxmedia.com sxsw-2018. Uh, I know that is super memorable, but again, sxsw-2018. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there.
1: Maybe you just um, evade your federal taxes, but still pay your California taxes. <laughs> but you lose in that salt deduction. <laughs> that's that's another episode.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as always by Sarah Cliff. Ezra's out on vacation this week. Uh, so so we're joined by Dylan Scott, a policy reporter focusing especially on healthcare here at Vox.com.
1: Which means we're gonna talk healthcare. We're gonna talk healthcare. We've got
2: a good research paper. It's about administrative data. Administrative American data from the United administ- States of right. fucking America.
1: We're done with Scandinavia.
2: It's amazing. US administrative data is rare, but but powerful, <laughs> potent. But we got a, a couple healthcare things we want to talk about. Starting with a, a new, a new proposal. What I would consider a white paper.
1: Yes, I think this is a true white paper in our white paper versus working paper debate. <laughs> so this is a paper from the Center for American Progress, and it proposes a program called Medicare Extra for All, which is kind of clunky. But I think it's notable for two reasons. One is just where it is coming from. The Center for American Progress is what I think of as a more centrist and very influential liberal think tank here in D.C. They tend to be— It's the heart
2: of the establishment.
1: It's the heart of the establishment. They tend to be, you know, in the 2016, you'd kind of think of them as the Clinton-aligned think tank. And what we're seeing here is this big influential think tank that is manned by a lot of people who go in and out of Democratic White Houses— shifting much, much closer to the Bernie Sanders vision of health care. So I think one thing as you think about this report is to think about who who the authors are, because to me, it shows a very big shift in the Democratic Party and Democrat policy that you have this you know Clinton-aligned think tank shifting towards the Sanders point of view on health care, which brings us to the plan itself. I, I would, you know, technically not call it a single payer plan, but it certainly is a universal coverage plan. So the idea of Medicare extra for all would be to shift lots and lots and lots of people into the Medicare program to beef up the benefits of Medicare. And over the next, you know, if you implement this plan over a decade or so, you'd see the majority, vast majority of Americans covered through one government plan. One of the things it does do a little bit differently than um, the plan proposed by Bernie Sanders, which would really be single payer, would put all Americans into the Medicare program, it does let people stay in employer-sponsored insurance. It doesn't wipe that out. It doesn't say all of us are transitioning. There are policy and political reasons to do this. I think the political ones might be stronger, that you don't want to send out millions of cancellation notices, as we saw how people react to that disruption with Obamacare. But essentially, this plan reminds me of a lot of European healthcare systems in that it includes multiple payers, so multiple sources of health insurance, but government regulation of the prices they pay. So you have a really tightly regulated insurance market. You do have people spending money on health insurance. One of the big differences between Medicare Extra and the Sanders Medicare for All is that it does expect that higher income Americans are going to make some pretty – significant contributions to their own health care. People above 500% of the poverty line, which I think is about $60,000 or so dollars for an individual, are going to be expected to put in 10% of their income towards premiums, which, you know, that's a pretty significant amount. People at the poverty line are not going to pay premiums. And you would see the same kind of scaled cost sharing for things like co-payments and deductibles. So it certainly envisions people spending money on health care, So in that way, I think it might be a disappointing plan to some fans of the Sanders approach to healthcare. It definitely is not going all the way to Canadian system, but it is a really, really big step to the left, step towards European healthcare systems from where... I've seen cap in covering the healthcare debate for the past decade or so.
3: Yeah, and I think that point about employer-based coverage is almost like the essential feature of the plan, right? The fundamental challenge for moving to a universal single-payer program is that half of Americans get their coverage through work. And as Sarah and I found when we did some focus groups around single-payer last fall, most people who have employer-based coverage are more or less satisfied with it. And so the disruption that would come to enrolling Every single American into a, a government run program is sort of like that's that's the biggest challenge that single payer advocates are going to face. So I read the cap plan is almost entirely structured around how do we sort of elide that problem while still creating a universal coverage system.
2: I always find this point to be a little maybe over overdwelled on because on one level, right, I mean, this plan, it, it reduces disruption in the sense that. Vox Media like might not drop our coverage and put us into the the Medicare extra for everyone risk pool. But on the other hand, like all of these like strong public option, these buy in kind of transitional mechanisms, the anticipation is that, in fact, many employers would opt into this system. And it's not an individual opt in. Right. I mean, what you would from a like a pure politics standpoint what you would want to do is create this like new better program but let people who don't think it's going to be better not enroll in it and then it's just like win 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 for everybody but this is done at the level of like the corporate hr department so to the extent that political opponents want to like spread like fear uncertainty and doubt It's still the case that passing this bill could cause your employer to cancel your plan and enroll you in the scary government-run alternative. And so to sell the program to people, you're going to have to make the case that the government-run alternative is actually not that scary. So I see reasons for doing it this way, but I don't think it's like that much of a game changer exactly. And then in policy terms, it's also not that – big of a deal. I mean, politics is politics. But at the end of the day, if we're talking about, you know, a one year versus a 10 year transition to a system in which everyone is enrolled ultimately in a government system, it's, you know, it's kind of similar. And you gotta make the deals you got to make to get it through. To me, I do think it's interesting that they retain, I would say, a fundamental disagreement with Sanders about what the end program should look like, that there is one world in which the idea is that, you know, there is a public service provided on a common basis to everyone, the way like the park is or high school is or the bus is, and a system in which there is subsidy-based need, which this retains that like Obamacare type element, I fundamentally do not get the mainstream faction of the Democratic Party's like intransigence on this point, which seems like across the board, right? Like when it came to college, they're like scandalized by the thought of like wasting tuition subsidies on affluent upper middle class families but also like not at all saying we should have means tested tax credits for access to parks. Like it's Wait,
1: sorry, sorry, let me make sure I understand. So you are you're confused by the the Sanders focus on free for all or the, the other no, side of by, wanting by, to meet by by, by,
2: by, by by the mainstream Democrats' insistence on means testing not on means testing everything, but like on exclusively means testing anything that's new. Even while they completely accept the logic of non means tested public services for everything for that parks, exists
1: for parts for other things that right. exist. Yeah, like what's like what's the problem
3: here? Well, to your point about creating a more attractive alternative, like you know, this this plan lays out, you know, you could pay up to 10% of your income in premiums. You're you're going to have an out-of-pocket cap that's that adjusts based on your income and yeah, it, it seems like a much harder sell to be like, we're going to move you out of this one administrative bureaucracy with all these sort of various levels and and self-payment that you're required to make and into this other one that has just as much complexity versus like a Sanders plan where it's just be like, here's your free health insurance. Well, and, and conceptually,
2: get- I mean, it's the same as a progressive income tax, right? I, I mean, to say like, OK, there's going to be a sliding scale subsidy level because I, I get the philosophy, right, that it's like, OK, the government should be helping the people who need the most. Help, but like the tax code already has that feature. So I guess the CBO will score it differently if you say, like, I have a benefits phase out versus I have a higher increase in my payroll tax size. But like in the economics, at least I think it's the exact same thing. It just seems harder to explain.
1: So I don't find it as hard to explain because I think when you look at international healthcare systems, more countries have made. The choice to do some kinds of means testing and what people pay for healthcare. So, so usually the ones I'm familiar with, mostly European healthcare systems, they'll have some threshold where below this threshold you don't pay anything. You're considered it's considered, you know, that you are someone who needs a service and can't afford it. And above the threshold, you you know contribute something each time you go to the doctor. Usually they're small. Matt and I were looking at um, some Scandinavian cost sharing before coming in here. In places like Sweden and Norway, you're talking about like fifteen or so dollar copayments. Was it in Sweden the, the cost sharing limit is like less than two hundred dollars? Yeah, it was like year. about a
2: hundred this was a few years old, so yeah, it was okay. about hundred eighty like bucks. So it might be up to two hundred
1: for now. as much. So I think it is actually a pretty common feature of healthcare. I would put buses actually in like this category too. Like we charge people to use buses because we think it's a limited good. There's only so many seats on on the bus, so you have to pay each time you you want to use the bus. And you don't pay a lot, but you like pay a little bit to get on. But if you're low income, usually like most cities like run some kind of program. It's free, it's discounted. The ide- ideological underpinnings are somewhat similar that we have this resource That is always going to be limited and we can actually extend it a little more if we ask higher income people to kick in some amount of money. And if we remind them like with a nudge each time, like, hey, this does cost money. It's fine if you go to the doctor, but we want to remind you like with a five or ten dollar payment. I mean, one thing that is surprising to me, I think they have not modeled out the cap plan yet. The folks I talk to at the think tank say they're working with third party economic modelers to think, figure out things like how much would this cost people at different income levels? Like, What would the cost sharing be? It sounds really high to me at this point, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know yet. But it sounds like for people who are you know higher earners, it would score well for CBO because you're going to have them kicking in a decent amount um, as premiums, as their cost sharing. But I think it would be different from a European system in that sense, that it would be much higher cost sharing for more more affluent. But I mean like you could argue the European countries are comparing it to have like a more even more progressive tax system. So right. higher income people are contributing that way.
2: But I also I, I want to draw a distinction between why do you have co-payments in the public system and why do you have income based premiums, right? So I think you have co-payments I think for the the reasonable countries. is that like no country can provide healthcare services in unlimited quantity. Right, So you need – if you have a universal system, you need some mixture of administrative rationing and like, consumer disincentives to consume healthcare. So most systems involve some of that, right? And, and we were l- looking at, at the Nordic systems. They have these very low copayments, but they're not zero, right? So I think the idea is to like get you to at least think about it. Before before you go see the doctor, that makes a lot of sense. And then to say, okay, look, for 80, 90% of the population, these are low, very reasonable co-payments, but we're gonna, you know, kick in a little extra money so that the poorest of the poor or or children, you know, some select categories of vulnerable people, um, get extra financial help so so they can go see the doctor for free. I totally get that. Um and if America needs higher copayments because we're coming from a different status quo point, like that also makes a lot of sense to me. It, it's on the premium side where like I don't I don't actually understand what like work it's doing. As I understand it, like administratively, there's no escape from this system. Right? If I'm bouncing along at whatever it's weird to talk about everything in terms of multiples of, of the poverty line. Um, but Especially if
1: you're, when you're at like 500%. Right.
2: But so if you're at about twice the national median income, which, you know, many, most people obviously aren't by definition, but but many people are, uh, you are paying. Which is how much? like This would be Walmart. about $100,000 okay. household income. Uh, you're paying, what, 10% of your income yeah. in premiums, mm-hmm. right? So that's like that's like a tax, but not a tax, but there are going to be tax increases anyway. It, 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 just, like, it just seems odd to me. Like It it seems like, why not say that like there's no premiums, but we're going to have to have higher taxes to pay for this system, since clearly you're going to have to have higher taxes to pay for this system.
1: Well, I think because you retain the employer-sponsored feature. So, I mean, you could call it a premium tax on people who... Don't keep employer-sponsored insurance. But I think that's why you do it as a premium versus a tax. Like one of the things I am, I think, more skeptical than some other observers about how much a plan like Medicare Extra would erode employer-sponsored coverage. I think one of the things the ACA rollout taught me is that employer-sponsored coverage is really sticky. You know, people don't like change. They don't like disruption. And there was this expectation. I would talk to a lot of health economists like in 2010 or so, um, you know, people like Zeke Emanuel, John Gruber, who would say by 2020, by 2025, the employer market won't exist anymore. It is just so much cheaper for companies to put their people on Obamacare and pay penalties instead of providing health insurance. And that just totally has not been true. We haven't seen not even the end of the employer market, but any sort of erosion of the Employer market. And I think part of that has to do with the launch of healthcare.gov. I think that scared employers off at first. And that, it, you know, the plans that people who get employer sponsored coverage at work would get on the marketplace are typically not nearly as generous. And if you think of like higher earners, like, um, you know, like a big accounting firm, a bank or something transitioning their employees to Medicare Extra. They might have a lot of people paying significant money towards their premium. That is one of my assumptions that the ACA rollout really revised was this idea that, that companies are they want to get rid of this burden of providing insurance, but I don't think they're actually that enthusiastic and pretty worried about what their workers would do if they if they went in that direction.
3: So on this point, I'm curious what you guys think. I read the the plan is actually kind of subtly kind of working really hard to preserve a lot of employer insurance because there are a few different ways that that employers could act under Medicare Extra. And as background, like one of the defining features of the American insurance system is that the benefits that employers, the health benefits that employers give to their workers are tax-free, right? And so, under the Medicare Extra plan, employers could either continue to just provide private insurance and there would be some standard sets for how much they have to provide to their workers but they would more or less function as it does now and they would keep that unlimited tax benefit more or less but i noticed that if employers sent their workers or if their workers went to medicare extra the employers would be provided to pay money into medicare extra and that money would not have the same tax benefit that it currently does and so i wondered if you think about that like behaviorally does that mean that there's a lot of incentive for employers to continue offering their own coverage? And so it's sort of a subtle way to keep standing up the system as I it did, exists I today. did
2: not catch that, that it switches that so, so you lose the tax deduction if you pay the Medicare extra premium. Right,
3: more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I would think, right? Doesn't that, that – that gives so you a I lot of incentive. So I talked to
1: Cap about this. I talked to Tover Spiro, one of the authors, and he I, – I, I hope I get this right and um, – if I don't, we'll post something in the Facebook group. But my understanding was they they so they saw giving that tax exemption to companies that are transitioning to Medicare extra almost as a double subsidy. So if a company like moves people to Medicare Extra, those people are going to get their government subsidy. The company could go in and say like, Hey, we're going to help you pay your premium that's left over for you, and so. He did not – so this was how I read the plan originally. When I talked to Tofer about it, his view was if we kept the tax exemption for what they're paying on the premium, they're essentially getting two subsidies. They're getting the subsidy that their people get as being part of Medicare Extra and they're getting the tax subsidy. We're happy to give them one. but And I guess you could like supercharge it, right, and give them the two subsidies to really get people well, I mean, into it Medicare d- It depends Extra. what you're trying to do. It depends right? what you're right. And I think like – I think these are also like the questions that would really be hashed out if this ended up as a legislative debate as well. Because,
2: well, because this goes back to what we were saying before, the amount of subsidy that an individual gets depends strongly on that individual's income, right? So this sounds like if you are a large employer of fairly low-wage workers, right? I mean, if you're uh, Walmart – well, I'm not sure. Does does Walmart provide insurance to rank and file staff members? I think they do. So it could be very attractive in that case to send people off into a world where they're going to get – probably most of those people would get a fairly heavily subsidized premium, right, versus like if you're Goldman Sachs and your staff would not be getting – Heavy subsidies as individuals in the thing, but your tax write-off is quite valuable. The, the tax exclusion is more valuable the more highly compensated your workforce is. Mm-hmm. And the Medicare extra subsidy is more valuable the lower subsidized your workforce is. So it seems like you, your HR department would have to like really look at like the income profile of your staff, because it's going to make a big difference. If you have a a highly compensated workforce, you're giving up a big tax subsidy in order to get a very small uh, direct spending subsidy. But if you have a low-wage workforce, it's the exact opposite.
1: So should we take a break and kind of talk about the larger context into which Medicare Extra falls?
2: Please. Every great business is powered by great people, and to find great people, it would be great to have a great way to find great people. And just like posting your job online and kind of praying that somebody good sees your ad and applies, that's, that's not good enough anymore. This is 2018, uh, there should be a better way, there is a better way. The better way is called ZipRecruiter. Uh, ZipRecruiter's founders, they, they knew you could get smart about this, they built a platform. What it does is it finds the right job candidates for you. Uh, ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for identifies people with the right experience, and then it invites them to apply to your job. It's it's a recruiter, uh, but with intelligent software instead of laborious human labor. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter, they don't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. So the right candidates are out there, and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Um, so here's what you need to know. Right? Basically, ZipRecruiter is great, uh, and businesses of all size trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. And so right now, if you want to give it a try, uh, you can try it out for free. Uh, it's a great deal. You really can't beat free. Uh, so how do you get it? You go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. ZipRecruiter, it's the smartest way to hire. So one thing I was just, like, pulling my hair is, like, are Democrats really, if they win a majority, like, do they really have to do a giant health care reform
1: again? It went so well last time.
2: Well, <laughs> but, but it's not just, like, Like everybody who bites this off winds up in trouble. But I think uh, development so far in 2018 suggests that, like... If Democrats were to sweep into power in a couple of years, they would not necessarily be inheriting like a stable healthcare situation that they could just move on from. Right? right.
3: I think the cap plan sets this up pretty explicitly. Right. Like they've 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 laid out that there are under the Trump administration and under a Republican Congress there have been a lot of threats to the Affordable Care Act and its new status quo. And so that therefore necessitates that we need to set up an even more, a a bigger universal program that would sort of be unassailable from some of those outside threats. And I mean, we've seen that come to fruition here in the last couple of weeks. So there's been two things that we've we've written about that the Trump administration and that Republican-led states have been doing to try to unravel uh, the Affordable Care Act as much as they can, um, so even though Republicans in Congress failed to repeal it. So on the one hand, the Trump administration is trying to expand the use of short-term, limited-duration insurance plans. And these are, insurance plans that are currently limited. You can only buy them for three months. They're more or less designed for people who are maybe in between jobs and just need some kind of coverage uh, to get them through until they have uh, more robust insurance again. And under those plans, those plans are not subject to all of the rules that we associate with the Affordable Care Act. You know, They can deny people coverage based on their medical status. They can charge people higher premiums based on their health status. They don't have to cover all the essential health benefits that Obamacare mandated. And so it's kind of a return to a, a pre-ACA world. The reason right now that those plans aren't necessarily very attractive is they only last for three months. What the Trump administration wants to do is extend them to 364 days. So that's more or less a, a real insurance plan. And they're, they're even looking at, they haven't decided about this yet, but they've they've asked for comments on whether they should make these plans Renewable. And so, if these plans last a year and if they're renewable, it's more or less just this alternative pre Obamacare market that would, because there's health, un- there's medical underwriting, because there might be fewer benefits covered, it's probably going to attract younger and healthier people away from the Obamacare markets into these short term plans, which, as we discuss, or and I'm sure as you guys discuss all the time on this podcast, that's going to drive up premiums because you're going to have an older and sicker Obamacare market uh, left behind. And the other piece of this that 's very it 's more or less the same thing it 's just a state doing it instead of the Trump administration. Idaho has proposed that um, non ACA plans should be allowed to be sold in the state, kind of just in total defiance of federal law they aren 't even asking for like a federal waiver to do it they 're just saying we 're going to allow. You know, plans that have medical underwriting and that don't have to cover all these essential health benefits back onto the market, and you would expect more or less the same phenomenon of younger and healthier people going to non-Obamacare plans, which makes the Obamacare market costlier, sicker, older.
2: The Idaho issue—it seems to me to raise some more fundamental questions, like what? I mean, there's a law. You can't just
3: not. I mean. But can you? (laughs) Can you not just. Because, like, what if
2: Congress passed a law to, I don't know, ban assault weapons? And then Idaho passed a different law? That was like, sorry. (laughs) So
1: this is a really interesting, I think like Dylan and I have become obsessed with Idaho. If you subscribe to our newsletter, VoxCare, um, which you certainly should if you're interested in healthcare, you realize it's basically become an Idaho newsletter at this point. (laughs) So obviously, no, like states do not have the authority to ignore federal law. Like that is a fact. But how you compel a state to follow federal law when they decide to ignore it, that part's a lot trickier and that part is is something that we're watching play out in real time. So one of the things that's come up a lot when I've discussed this with people, usually the backstop would be the federal government. Idaho says we're not going to do Obamacare, the federal government says that's our law, you have to implement it. We are going to take whatever steps, you know, we need to take to get you to do so. You even saw this in early Obamacare days, there were some consumer protections that states were supposed to implement for states um, didn't And the federal government said, OK, fine, we're just going to step in and be the regulators in this case because you guys aren't doing this. So usually the federal government would be the backstop. But in this case, the Trump administration, I mean, I don't think anything has changed. We've known yeah. about this Idaho plan since Jan- since like late January. Um, HHS Secretary Alex Azar has gotten questions about it. I believe you were at an event where he said it wasn't really his place to. Weigh yeah, he in said on this.
3: he couldn't comment on media reports. He needed to. see so he needed to see. But, a but so it's
2: the people running the executive branch of the federal government yes. don't believe that the federal law should exist. Right. So right. they are choosing to not yeah. enforce and it.
1: Yeah. In a way, this is actually kind of similar to what the Obama administration did on marijuana when Washington and Colorado start passing laws. That say marijuana is legal in our state. They, you know, decided not to, not to enforce federal law there. I think I think it is quite different. So I was, I, I think it's fair to say there's some similarities. Even
2: in second term pro marijuana Obama mode, marijuana because it was illegal under federal law, marijuana businesses could not claim federal business tax benefits, and they could not access the American banking system. I'm fairly confident that, right, if this was a different situation, right, what Obama did was he withdrew the DEA, right, from enforcing marijuana laws in states that that had adopted legalized marijuana. I don't think Obama would necessarily, like, send, I don't know what, like, it, HHS doesn't have an enforcement arm like that. Like, they're goons, like, knocking on doors <laughs> in Boise. But if you said, look, the SEC and other bank regulators are going to be like, yo, you're not operating a legal insurance company? Like, they would, they would stop. Yeah.
3: That, that's the distinction uh, the great Nicholas Begley at the University of Michigan made that point that, you know, it costs millions of dollars and hundreds of hours of manpower to enforce federal drug prohibition. But to just to stop, you know, Blue Cross of Idaho from selling non-Obamacare plans should be as simple as sending a letter or maybe doing something kind of through the back door at the SEC. Or just
1: stepping in yourself. Like, that is sure. what the federal government did under Obama. They do said, some, okay, like— some tweets. Like no, like you. If if the state is not going to regulate this federal law, like we will take over. You guys are being negligent. I think one of the interesting questions about Idaho. So when this plan first came out, I talked to some healthcare experts who were like, "This is just grandstanding. No health insurance company is going to be dumb enough to sell non-Obamacare plans because the fines for selling non-Obamacare plans are incredibly high. You can be charged up to hundred dollars per person per day." Each day someone is enrolled in one of these. So, you know, nice try, Idaho, but this isn't going anywhere. Then the biggest health insurance company in Idaho, Idaho Blue Cross Blue Shield, says we would like to sell these plans and we would like to do so beginning in April. Um, We're going to call them freedom plans and we're going to put them on the market. And then it became very, very real that a state could actually have these non-Obamacare plans on the market. And it's not totally clear. So if the federal government is not willing to step in, the next place this likely goes is the courts and some kind of challenge to the insurance company itself who is selling a non-compliant plan. Probably not a challenge to the state of Idaho. There are some interesting questions about standing, who can actually bring this lawsuit. But I think all of this to step back to where we started is you know, context for why you're seeing a plan called Medicare Extra show up right now. You know, I think back to 2010, the Democrats, they were building a law that predicted and worked around challenges they thought they'd have getting industry to comply with the Affordable Care Act. So they made sure they had pharma, they had insurance companies, they had doctors on board because they felt like this law just couldn't work if they didn't have those big business actors on board. I think it's fair to say they did not feel the same way about Republicans. They certainly tried to get them on board, and I don't think they, you know, there was like anything else they could have done to do so. But they felt like we're still going to pass this law and, you know, once it like rolls out and people have health insurance, Republicans will become friendly implementers of this law. That there was an expectation, for example, every state would set up their own marketplace because like, why would you turn that over to the federal government if you're if you've been lobbying for state control and lobbying for more state power? And I think Democrats built a law that was not resilient to these kind of implementation challenges to states just deciding, well, we don't want to implement it. And Obamacare gave states a lot of flex- flexibility. It gave the regulators a lot of flexibility around things like the short-term plans that Dylan talked about. When I talked to the folks at CAP, they are kind of realizing that this law that they work so hard on is not especially resilient to these challenges that they did not expect. And I think that is in a large way, what is driving, like why do another healthcare push? Because they they see a lot of these problems unfolding with the with the last healthcare push.
3: Well, and it's worth noting that you know it's not it's you know we almost kind of make a joke out of look at this weird thing Idaho is doing, but it's not just going to be Idaho, especially if they get away with it. I, I saw yesterday that Iowa legislators are already talking about introducing an Idaho like plan into their state, and I think the expectation is if HHS doesn't intervene and if it sh- if it's proven that the courts can't really override this either, then, you know, you're going to have half of the states that are controlled by Republicans introducing their own it's freedom well more plans. Right. Um half the states. Right. right? Um, and the other piece of this is, too, and I, I I took note of this in the cap plan, is the other tract where the Trump administration is kind of undermining progressive health care goals is in Medicaid. And the Trump administration has signaled to states that they can institute work requirements for Medicaid recipients. And that's sort of that's an idea when you talk to people on the progressive side who work on Medicaid, they find sort of just fundamentally objectionable and that it that it sort of runs entirely counter to the purpose of Medicaid in the first place. And so I noticed that the cap plan more or less said that Medicaid would be subsumed into the federal program. Right now it's a federal and state partnership and states have a lot of administrative discretion about how to implement the plan in their states. The way the cap plan describes it is more or less Medicaid would become federally run that would kind of remove all of this state discretion about how to how to run it. And I think that is, again, reflective to Sarah's point of like the progressive side of things, realizing the mistakes that they made and how they set up the ACA. Well, Dylan, you
1: wrote a piece recently about those focus groups we did with Democratic voters who seem to be like having the same mindset shift, too. Um, It's kind of like the flip side of this. If you give too much power to the federal government. Right. Like this envisions like a benevolent implementer of Medicare extra. Yeah. But um, it seems like, they're, I, I don't know. Yeah, I thought that piece is kind of relevant to the discussion. Yeah,
3: whereby. something we ran into a lot with the Clinton voters we talked to, people who said that they were at least sort of receptive to the idea of single-payer health care, is they were worried that, you know, the federal government could kind of dramatically shift after four years. And I think it's a reflection of how they feel about Trump. Trump has really shaken up their ideas of the kind of people who could be in charge of the federal government and and what they might be willing to do. And so when you're talking about a government-run healthcare program the idea that it could one year be run by Barack Obama which i'm sure all of these voters were were fine with and the next year it could be run by Donald Trump that's kind of that's jarring for them and i think it's a it's a real challenge in terms of just the political conversation because people's faith in in institutions and in governments even sort of the most you know institutionally minded people like Clinton voters who live around the Washington, D.C. area are suddenly sort of unmoored. And so, yeah, maybe the kind of bottom line to all of this is that you can't necessarily escape, given just our political situation, you can't escape that volatility and and any sort of system that relies on the government bureaucracy is going to be susceptible to this. I
2: I do think this is like a more profound, a, a challenge beyond the scope of like a single white paper, right? But if you look at, I mean, not just this healthcare stuff, but like the... Uh, dismembering of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, the uh, seeming redirection of the entire EPA budget to Scott Pruitt's first-class airfare—like <laughs> Democrats either need to like make Republicans pay a political price that is so hefty that like they do not govern this way the next time they govern, or they need an entirely state-based strategy for building a progressive welfare state. Because it's not just like, okay if Donald Trump does something weird, right? But it's like if a Republican administration backed by almost every congressional Republican, backed by most Republican governors, therefore backed by most Republican judges, just has like a party consensus about how things should work, there's like nothing you can do about that. Right? Like, we haven't historically had. There's lots of things where, like, Trump says something weird, and then, like, I mean, like, Trump the other day was like, maybe we should raise the age for buying assault weapons. But many congressional Republicans disagreed with that, and it's, like, by no means clear that it will happen. And if he tried to just through administrative fiat do something like that, you know, he'd get pushback. But if the Republican Party can hold these, like, fairly extreme views and, like, win most elections, then I don't think you're going to, like, just like through some clever line of text that's like, no, actually, you have to keep the benefits good, <laughs> you know, I would, I would fox them like that. I mean, Trump ran, right, by saying really explicitly, like, that he was like, different from other Republicans, that he was going to provide health insurance. And like, he's not done that at all. And it's also not clear that he's paid, like a real political price for it. And that's, I mean, all these stupid Trump country stories keep confirming. It's not like the typical Trump voter is like, holy shit, he was lying about Medicaid. Now, now I hate Trump. But, you know, if people can just lie about, like, the major aspects of their policy views, that's like, that's trouble.
1: All right. I think it's time to, to shift from our white paper to our working paper. But Absolutely. only after, after we take a break.
2: Take a break. Are you going to South by Southwest? Uh, if you are, uh, you should really consider joining Ezra for a live taping of the Ezra Klein show. Uh, he, he's going to be talking to, to Melinda Gates. Uh, she's a co-chair of the Gates Foundation. Conversations about the power and importance of philanthropy. Uh, this is one of the most influential, sort of important people in the philanthropic world. He's going to be talking with Ezra. Um, where is it happening? It's happening at the deep end by Vox Media. Um, the, Vox Media is taking over the Belmont. It's about a 10-minute walk from the Austin Convention Center. Nice little stroll. Uh, Ezra's show is going be happening Sunday, March 11th at 3.30pm. Who's invited? Everyone is invited. Uh, but if you want to get your ticket, uh, request an invitation to come. It's voxmedia.com slash sxsw-2018. That's like the Vox Media South by Southwest site. Go there, check it out. Uh, find out more information, request an invitation at voxmedia.com slash S-X-S-W hyphen 2018. Um, So the the whole shebang here, The Deep End by Vox Media is taking over the Belmont for a three-day event at South by Southwest. It runs from March 9th to March 11th, features live podcasts from a whole bunch of Vox Media podcast network favorites. Uh, Kara Swisher is going to be there with her Recode Decode show. Uh, The Verge is going to be there with the Verge cast. And Ezra is going to be talking with Melinda Gates for a special live taping of the Ezra Klein show. So please check it out. This one's a doozy. We got Political Alignment, Attitudes Towards Government, and Tax Evasion by Julie Berry Cullen, Nicholas Turner, and Abanya L. Washington. It's a great group. Economists out of UC San Diego and Yale work with Nicholas Turner from the Federal Reserve Board. Although critically, previously, he was at the Treasury Department. And as a Treasury Department economist, he helped the team get access to IRS data.
1: Administrative In, data. Administrative
2: data. <laughs> okay. Up? And so what they do is they look at what tax payments from different counties based on whether that county voted for the winning president, right? So it's like, are you aligned with the incumbent administration or are you opposed to the incumbent administration? And what they find is that when you shift from being aligned to disaligned, your county's reported income suffers this, like, mysterious drop. Mm -hmm. And the drop is concentrated in categories of income that it's known to be harder for the IRS to verify. And they see also that phony-looking EITC claims also go up in counties that go into misalignment, and IRS audits also go up into counties that go into misalignment, all of which seems to be suggesting that when a president who you don't like is in office the sort of conscience and norms slip away and people become more aggressive tax evaders
1: and i will say it's not like all of a sudden nobody in these places is paying their taxes we're talking about like some kind of smaller noticeable but smaller shifts so just i don't know if we have any numbers yeah i mean i mean it's the magnitude of it but just to give people some context
3: well they said something in there just to set the context that like 80% Eighty percent or eighty-five percent of people just pay their taxes because, like, that's what they should do. And so, yeah, to Sarah's point, it seems like a lot of this was at the margins, even if it was still noticeable. I mean, it's a,
2: it's a it's about a one point two percent change in reporting. I mean, it's not huge, to be clear. It's hard to get away with cheating on your taxes mostly. Mostly your employer also reports your income. You know, so they're looking at the sort of like what's get away withable, which is a fairly small share of the overall income. Even within that, the magnitude is modest, in part because even a county, right? So like Maricopa County in Arizona, like, voted for Donald Trump, but a huge number of the people who live there. Did not vote for you know counties aren't people so like it's it's not like this is like devastating shortfall in tax revenue results from this it's more a curious window into human psychology
1: yeah and I think it's interesting to think through it doesn't seem to me to suggest a scale where people are like well fuck that like Trump is in office Obama's in office I'm just not paying my taxes anymore but like more of a skepticism of you know what are my tax dollars going for is it actually that important that I pay this. Some of the research they cite in the conclusion of this paper looks at pretty high numbers of confusion about what tax dollars go to. Um, it, they cite some other research finding that people who, who are more skeptical of government spending are more likely to overestimate their own tax rate. So I think it's like an interesting window into political psychology. And like one way we really do with our money as like we enter this tax season comment a little bit on how legitimate we think the government is, you know, whether whether we mean to or not.
3: To that point, I th- what I thought was interesting, too, was how in that conclusion was how malleable people's opinions could be. There was an interesting I think it was from the Kaiser Family Foundation of finding that, you know, 60 percent of people thought, you know, we were spending too much on foreign aid. But then when you told them what the actual amount was, like one percent of the federal budget. That number dropped in half and most people were actually fine with it. I was curious what you guys thought we should do with this information. The one thing that the researchers point to is sort of better education about what your tax dollars are spent on because to that Kaiser finding, it seems like people are mostly okay with how we spend our federal money if they know it, but they have a sort of these warped perceptions that may be founded in their political outlook. But I don't know. It, it was like an interesting thing that was sort of intuitive, but also like it was fascinating to see it put down with data. But then I was like, "What? What? What should we do with this exactly?"
2: Yeah, I mean, I, it's always interesting to remind oneself how little typical even people who voice strident opinions about politics don't actually have a lot of like deep like what you would consider like an earnest level of concern with politics where you would like look stuff up and like try to check and, and understand what's going on? You know, like if you were going to like renovate your deck. Right. And so you took an interest in the permitting process and you would have to like find out how it works and stuff like that. Like people don't relate to national politics in that kind of way. They can become very cranky about like all the money that's wasted on X without ever checking like how much money is wasted on X or is it wasted. Even though it's not that hard to look things up. It's just like not the level on which normal people engage with politics or with the political system, because it doesn't actually matter. I mean, it's like an important thing to recognize, right? It's like, whether you vote for Donald Trump, or vote for Gary Johnson, or stay home, or vote for Hillary Clinton, or say Bernie would have won, it's like nothing is going to change. So you can sort of engage in this like freebie position taking without needing to inform yourself in any kind of real way. And I think that's like incredibly fundamental to politics, right? Mm. And in America, we have such a lack of consensus between the parties, right? It's like, if there was like a broad elite agreement that foreign aid is really good, then you could educate the public. And it doesn't seem like it would be that hard. It's not like people like refuse to process information, but would have to like come from credible... Mm sources. But there's profound disagreement among the elected officials. So you hear a lot of people arguing. And it's like, that's not a good way to learn.
1: One of the things I think is notable is the data source they're using. So obviously, we don't really have data for, you know, under President Trump. But we are, they are using the 2000 election. So George W, they're using the year before and after George W. Bush was elected to office. And then the year and after President Obama was elected to office. And I think it's notable. This is something you're seeing on both sides. It's not one of those trends that seems to be polarized towards Republicans or Democrats. And, you know, that is certainly an era when politics were pretty polarized, but even less so than they are right now. So one of the things I would wonder is if you repeat this study, you know, in the year before and after President Trump was elected, if you're going to see the magnitude of this amplified even more if as people become more hyper partisan and you know the reaction on the left to President Trump has been so incredibly strong if if this becomes even more of an issue and then it like gets to like Dylan's question of like if this does become a significant issue what do you do about it this is not just like funny fake money at some point this is the money that like runs the government that funds the different things that we do I, I don't think like we're at like crisis territory yet but i'm curious like how a trend like this one might develop in tandem with an increasingly partisan type of politics
3: yeah the one thing the study probably just didn't have the the resources to get to is sort of like how long like is this oh is this just like a fundamental truth of american politics or is it something that's a more recent phenomenon that reflects kind of party polarization yeah and- I mean we're talking about tax receipts
2: and something that I think is just interesting. I remember from covering the tax bill is it's been a really long time since the budget deficit was a significant like macroeconomic problem in America. It's been – it's gotten kind of hot and cold as a political topic. Mm. But it's been probably – since the deficit started falling under Bill Clinton in the mid-90s, So it became not a big problem. And then as it went up, the macroeconomic conditions when Bush was president, again, when Obama was president, were benign. So we're going on like 20-plus years now since there's been like a concrete problem in which the head of the Federal Reserve is like phoning up the Treasury secretary and is like growth is going to tank unless you can get the deficit down low. 25 years probably since since Alan Greenspan and Bill Clinton had to have that conversation – So everything about, like, is, like, tax administration working is just, like, kind of total fantasy land. And, like, if Democrats just kind of, like, believe on principle that you should make rich people pay taxes and Republicans kind of don't, you can just kind of let it go that way. But in some other regime in which it actually matters, you could imagine some of this stuff changing, right? I mean, you, you could tell a happy story in which, like, faced with objective challenges, America's political elites feel that they need to, like, come together and, like, bolster public faith in institutions to make things work. Or I guess you could you could imagine going the other way and we just, like, tip into disaster.
3: Right. Well, that's to Sarah's point about are we going to see an even a, a bigger effect um, from Obama to Trump? Yeah, this seems like, in a way, sort of a proxy for just deteriorating faith in, in government and institutions. And so if it keeps up, then, yeah, maybe we get to, to crisis points. Oh, the one thing
2: I... I feel like the liberal psychological reaction to Bush and Trump has been different. Go on. Like I felt like to to me, a lot of the people I knew, like Democratic friends, felt alienated from America by George W. Bush's elevation. Um, Whereas they feel, in some ways, like a renewed sense of like patriotism
1: in response.
3: Oh, I see. To Trump.
1: I don't know, but there's still like the very strong, not my president. Like, I, I get they do feel like this renewed sense of protecting America. But I don't know if that like when we're talking about giving money to the government. To the that state. Trump yes. runs. No, no.
2: I mean, that's true. That's true. I mean, the reaction to Trump is maybe more similar to the conservative reaction to Obama, mm-hmm. like the insistence <laughs> that like the true soul of America is now in exile. Yes. But that still makes you not want to pay taxes. Okay, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks so much to to Dylan Scott for coming on and joining us, filling in. Uh, thanks to Bridget Armstrong for producing this episode. Check out the Weeds Facebook group for more exciting discussion of these and other subjects.
1: Check out Today Explained, our new daily podcast that is really, really awesome.
2: Weeds fans will especially like the immigration episode produced recently. That yes, has, uh, that was really myself good. And, and Dara in it. So you know, it's it's like all your all your favorite friends, but with a new even better team. Um all right and we'll be back on Friday.